You guys there? Okay, good. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. We're going to spend two weeks in this passage. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should you nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So we're going to talk about this for two weeks. Um, I'm going to talk today about the concept of being an imitator of God in the first two verses and about sexual immorality in that section. Next week I'm going to talk about the negative motivation about um, wrath and not being partners with worldliness and its relationship to how we speak to each other, okay? That's how I'm going to break this down. Um, Because both of these are enormous subjects. In both the issue of sexuality and speech, so they might seem wildly unrelated. Some people are like, sexuality and speech, that's an interesting pair. But re- remember, it, it says our in these verses. Our, O-U-R. Meaning, this is still talking about our lives together as the body of Christ, as the people of God. And if you take a people, a group of people, and you say, what are two things that if they're done very well, that group of people will thrive— and if they're done poorly and without obedience to God, that people will fall apart and destroy each other and destroy themselves. These are the two. These are the two. The way we speak to each other and the way we utilize our sexuality to either bond into families and to be parts of groups and, or whether we use it to do whatever we want to each other and with each other and ultimately destroy each other while we th- and destroy ourselves while we think we're really finding fulfillment. So... If you look at the first verse, let's see if this is right. If you look at the first verse, it says in the translation in the Pew Bible, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Uh, Most of the translations translate that section. um, Sorry, there's like so many things in this. Translate that, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. The, old, the older translation of the NIV used those words. They think you're too dumb now to understand the word imitate, and so they just put in be like or whatever it is, follow God's example. But that's a much weaker, that's a much weaker locution, right, to say, you know, follow somebody's example. That, that's wide open. You know, like, well, do some things that person does. Does that make sense? Whereas the, the phrase in the Bible is the Greek word we, where we get our word to mimic. Like, be exactly like that person in every way, so much so that you are indistinguishable from that person. Imitate them entirely, right? And therefore, a Christian, whether they know it or not, (laughs) whether they're doing it or not, is an imitator of God. 
That's, in fact, you could sum up in the entire Christian life of how we live it out that way to say we're an imitator of God. Now, some of you are going to at some point not pay attention to the sermon and try to fill out the fill-in-the-blank thing on this card, okay? And I admire that. I'm glad that you're using your attention actively. So I don't want you to go crazy. So the last one, number three, the first N is really an R. The first N is really an R. Ashlyn was trying to trick you and, and keep you from working ahead, and I admire that about her. But, but I just want you to know that that's going to be an R. So in case you want to try to fill it out before I tell you, because it'll make you feel smart, even though it's really easy. Okay? All right, good. So what this passage is saying is every Christian is an imitator of God. Okay? We are an imitator of God, first and foremost, just to imitate Him. Of course, that's a big— that's kind of a big picture. You might not know how to break that down practically. So then he says, like Jesus, right? He says, as you live children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Jesus himself walked in the way of love, and in doing so, he pleased God. As a sacrifice, he was also a fragrant offering. In the Old Testament, when sacrifices were offered to God, there was always the sacrifice, like you had to give up the animal. There was an expense to it and a sacrifice to it. But then in most of the sacrifices, especially the positive ones, some kind of fragrance or incense was supposed to be added to the offering so that it smelled good. Does that make sense? And the reason was what you're supposed to get from that was that at the same time, something difficult was happening, but something beautiful was happening. You were supposed to see that. Yes, you were losing out on the thing you were giving. That thing was getting burned up, and that was a loss for you, a real loss for you. And it was a monetary loss. It was a physical loss. And yet, you were pulling into the old factory nerve something beautiful at the same time while you watched something in your life get burned to nothing. Does that make sense? Do you see how that's a perfect metaphor for sacrifice in any spiritual and moral way. Anytime you do anything for someone else, anytime you let go of something you have in your hands, and you, or you give up your time, or your privacy, or your ease, or your stress, <laughs> right? To help somebody else, you are burning to ashes something of value in your life. But if you are an imitator of God, you take immense pleasure spiritually and morally in getting to participate in the activity of love that enriches and helps another person. So while your time and money and ease are getting burned to ashes, you smell a fragrance that is beautiful, right? And that smell for a renewed person is more than sufficient compensation for what got burned up. Do you understand? That is the basis of the heart of a Christian. Somebody who has really been transformed by Jesus, who has put their full trust and faith in him, experienced the miracle of regeneration, the full gift of God, and is trying to walk to please the Holy Spirit rather than grieve him, from verse 15 or 17 in the last chapter, that you are willing and ready to sacrifice whatever is necessary, whatever is called upon in you, and the fragrance— of that burned-up sacrifice that you get from the pleasure of pleasing God and imitating Him is beyond the necessary compensation for you to be glad to do it. Does that make sense? Okay. So, I want to look at um, the idea of being an imitator of God because I think that there, there's going to be some— there's, there's some cynicism in the hearts of modern people about that, and then I want to specifically look at it in relationship to imitating God in the realm of sexual morality. Okay, so— um, Every Christian 
is called to imitate God, right? That's what this verse says. Let me see what the next slide is. Okay. It's important to recognize that this is not an obscure verse in the Bible. You might be like, okay, Nick, so one time, one time it says imitate Christ, you know, imitate God and like walk in the world. But is that language used very often? Well, first of all, you should realize that all of chapter 4 points up to this verse, and the rest of chapter 5 and 6 flow out of this verse. That's why the verse um, starts with therefore, which really can go there, more than here in the translation. It's nothing I don't like about the New NIV translation. I think that therefore really ought to be, ought to be right there. Therefore, it sounds cool to put it there because like follow God's example. What does that mean? Therefore, so therefore because you're following God's example, as dearly loved children walk in the way of love just as Christ did. So it, it operationally it feels right. You're like, imitate God. Well, that's too big for me to break down. Well, therefore, therefore to break it down, walk in the way of Christ just as he, right? But you see, that's not probably where that ought to go. It ought to go right here where it says, therefore follow God and be imitators of him just as Christ laid down his life for you, right? Because why? Because you just read chapter 4. You just read all through chapter 1 through 4. And chapters 1 through 3 told you about the glory of God and how great God is to imitate. And then chapter 4 started to tell you about stuff that you should do, and it's already getting a little hard. You know what I'm saying? If you read 2 through chapter 4, you're like, this is very demanding. You know? And then he gets to chapter 5. He's like, therefore, listen, think about it this way. I just said don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but think about it this way. Be an imitator of God. Like, you want to try— just try to come up with something where you could get more meaning in your life than that. Right? And I would argue that if you can come up with something that would give more meaning to your life than that, then you don't understand what it means to imitate God. That's what I would argue. And that's what I'm going to do for point one, basically. Okay? So, okay. But, oh, I still haven't seen this. Jill did this. Okay, so I'm just—I want to be really honest with you. I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana all weekend coaching a volleyball tournament. My head basically nearly exploded from all the noise. I was with girls the whole time, including nine of them in my hotel room, crying and talking to each other about their feelings. Okay? And at one point on the way home, when I was trying to write this sermon in the back of a Civic, um, I was trying not to listen through noise-canceling headphones to my daughters having a Taysway sing-along that I desperately wanted to be part of. No, I'm just kidding. That I was trying to write during. And so— I haven't even seen this yet, okay, because Jill made it while I was writing it, okay? So, um, the language of being an imitator of God is all through Scripture. It's everywhere. So, let me just read a couple of these for you. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. I urge you, therefore, to imitate me. And this is the reason I'm sending Timothy to you, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the churches. So, the Apostle Paul is saying, you should imitate God— you're going to need a more physical example of that. So imitate me, but I'm not coming to you. I'm going to send you somebody who's been imitating me for years, Timothy, because in Timothy you can see exactly the way of life that I live in Christ Jesus implicitly as I'm imitating God. Does that make sense? And that's what we're all imitating in all the churches. 11.1 says this. He says, Therefore be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Hebrews 6.12 we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what was promised. Right? So there are people in the body of Christ who are really imitating God with all their hearts. And there are others of us who are tempted to be lazy in our pursuit of Jesus. And he's like, 
pick out one of those people who is not lazy in their imitation of Jesus and imitate them so that you don't grow lazy in imitating God. Right? Hebrews 13, 68 says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus isn't changing. Therefore, if your leaders have imitated Jesus, you can imitate them and rightly be imitating Jesus. Does that make sense? There's some others too, but I'm going to not spend more time on that right now. Um, in uh, the pre-summer series in 2020, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians, which has a theme of imitation and example. And that series will be called Imitation and Example. So we'll come back to this a little bit. Part of what we should get from this passage is, remember the verse says this, imitate God as dearly loved children. Now, because one of the things that we need to face is that there is, there is a certain amount of cynicism around the idea of imitation. Because some people will say things like, well, listen, if you really imitate something else, right, aren't you really just going to end up at either a cheap knockoff or not really have deep individuality? Aren't you going to be one of those two? And isn't imitation, therefore, an inauthentic way for a human being to live? And so, therefore, I shouldn't really be imitating. Yeah, I might be able to get some things from some people, but imitation is too much. Okay, so first of all, I think it's important to start with the fact that that misunderstands both natural development and natural affection in human beings that are whole. Right? Um, the way it, this is reasoned, he says, imitate God as dearly loved children. If a child is growing up in a family, and that child is dearly loved by its parents, and is, has parents that are admirable, okay? Both of those two things. Now, in the context, there's no doubt whether or not God is admirable, right? The Apostle Paul is not speaking to people for whom that's in question. God is the absolutely admirable one, and in Christ, he has demonstrated absolutely that he dearly loves us. Any child in a natural family who grows up with parents who dearly love them and who are deeply admirable, the natural development and the natural affection that should grow up in a healthy child is the desire and the natural inclination to imitate their parents without even ever thinking about it. And that's exactly what happens. And what naturally happens to kids like that is when somebody says, you know, you're just like your dad, the kid goes, cool. Inside, they'll be like, that's not true. But inside, they're like, that's awesome. They think I'm like my dad. Or you're just like, and insert your family name. You're just, you're just like a, right? Like a CC is such a Kinetter name, right? It's like, if you know them, I'm so glad you guys are back. That's, that's great, right? But like, that is so their family. Just classics and meaning and the church's history and who was great in it and passing on those stories and imitating great people who've gone before us and not being ignorant of all the heritage that we have. That's so them, right? Could be all of us. I'd like to be more like that, right? But, but you can see like little Cece running around at seven and maybe being like, you're such a connector. You are. And then she'd be like, I know. Right? Because she has parents who dearly love her and who are admirable. Right? It's natural. It's, and it's not only natural in terms of development. Like any child grows up mimicking their parents. That's how you learn to talk. That's how you learn to move your face. That's how you learn that a smile expressed happiness and a frown expressed displeasure. 
It's how you learned everything you know without even knowing it, without ever choosing to imitate or not imitate because you were a child who had a parent and you imitated them. And it's natural not only that you would imitate them and figure out what you're doing, it's also natural that you would have affection for the one that you're imitating, right? And so when people struggle with the idea of imitation, I think that it's, it, misses, it misunderstands the spiritual nature of the Christian call to be an imitator of God. Okay, and I, I think it's based on two reasons. Let me see if I have— Okay. Where are we going? Here we go. I think it's based on two things. One is a fallacy and one is a fear. Okay. When people say, well, I think—isn't being—isn't imitating someone completely as a full example or model for you going to lead you to be either inauthentic or cheap knockoff. One is, I think there's a fallacy. It's called the fallacy of equivocation. When you use one word to mean two different things. So if I say some, something is an imitation, that can have, an, that you, and usually in our language, has a negative connotation. It's a cheap knockoff. That's an imitation such and such, means that it is like a not as good version of such and such and so and so, right? I don't know if this is true anymore, but years ago I would have said that like a Hyundai is like a knockoff Honda. An imitation Honda. Like, like, they look similar, they're not going to run as long. There's, um, one of the best chainsaw brands is, is Steel, right? There, it's like a German company, everything's well engineered, right? But there are foreign unbranded versions that have the same name now. So you can buy an MS661 chainsaw. It has the orange top and the white body looks exactly like the German engineered steel one. It's half the price. It comes from a country that tends to reverse engineer other people's technologies illegally that won't be mentioned, right? And you can buy it directly from that through like eBay or something, but just like, just look at the reviews online, like they don't run like what they're imitating, right? And so when we say, and become an imitation, if you hear that definition, or you assume that definition, or even in your feelings, you kind of you kind of abbreviate that connotation just a little bit. You'll, you'll find the idea repulsive, right? But you wouldn't say that if somebody made you a replica 1800s full oak table that was exactly like you could have gotten, like in central Norway, if you had found a really good woodsmith, you know, woodworker, that is just as strong, just as ornate, carved as beautifully, the exact same thing that you could never buy now from that era, but had to be replicated in the present with the full integrity of its original craftsmanship, right? What would happen if, like, the car companies we buy from just stopped making replicas of their previous cars? Like, you wouldn't have one. You'd run out. Like, there's, you, replication of authentic things that are great, that are worth imitating and remaking is fundamental. And here's the thing about human beings. The death rate for human beings is, is hovering, like, right around 100%. You know what I mean? Still, even with doctors, right? Just, yeah. And, and so you run out of humans, right? And if you don't replicate good ones, then you don't get good ones. And that's bad. Because you need a lot of good ones for things to not be terrible. And because human beings share a nature, not just a personality, and because much of our character and our being is rooted in the formation of our nature and our character— we are almost entirely exactly the same in a lot of ways. And so mimicry and imitation is fundamental to us being formed as we need to be. 
right? The second is fear, and that is if we imitate someone else, we won't deeply and truly be individuals ourselves, okay? C.S. Lewis has a good section on this in Mere Christianity where he says, if you want to be ordinary, try to just be extraordinary. Like the surest way to be mediocre is to just try to be extraordinary. The, the best way to actually be good at something is not to try to be great, but to try to do something at a really high level of quality, no matter what happens to you. Right? I say this to my volleyball players all the time. You guys are playing afraid because you're afraid you're going to lose, and losing is going to happen to you, and you've lost all the joy of playing, and so now you're playing terribly because you're concerned about what's going to happen to you. Just do the thing at the highest quality you can in the moment, and try to do it well, and then let the chips fall where they may about where you fall in the pantheon of success. Does that make sense? Same thing with originality. Lewis says, the, the surest way to not be original is to try to be original. If you try to be original, you'll do what everybody else who tried to be original did. And you'll do nothing of quality. So even if you do something that is not been done before, it will often be, be something that hasn't been done before because it was a stupid idea, and everybody it had occurred to before this had the good sense not to do it. Right? That's not good originality. Well, Lewis said, he said, listen, if you really want to be original, tell the truth in some way as fully and deeply as you can. And two times out of ten, you'll be original without trying. And there's very few writers, honestly, in the 20th century that were as original as Lewis. And the way he—you know how he achieved his great originality? He read voraciously from the, from the English writers of the Middle Ages. Same thing is true about Tolkien and Chesterton and many of these great Anglophiles of the 20th century. They were seen as incredibly um, original. They're still read today. Almost all their books are still in print. And what they did was they mediated the truths of the Middle Ages that had been completely forgotten into modern language, critiquing modernity with it. And it was beautiful and heart-stopping and helpful and useful. Right? Because they didn't try to be original. They didn't try to be individual. They just tried to tell the truth really well. And if you want to be an individual and an original person, whatever that means, pursue godliness. Imitate God. Learn to walk in the way of love as displayed in the fragrant offering of Jesus the Christ who lived out perfect humanity. And you will more often than not be very original in these times. Okay, I actually have a lot more to say on that, but let me just end it with this. The biggest question—let me see if there's a slide for this. The biggest question about imitation is not whether or not imitating something is good. These are the two biggest questions. In how you choose to imitate another, what is the quality of the model, and what is the quality of the replica? That's the question. Now, if you're a believer, hopefully we have presumed and agreed upon that the quality of the model is not in question. To imitate God is to imitate a model of absolute perfection, of full goodness, of heartbreaking beauty and His holiness. 
and is so worth it and has given us the most concrete possible example and further model in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we have a literally human divine model by which to be directly connected to and to personally model ourselves after in imitation, right? Which is great. The question is, what's the quality of the replica going to be? You see, so the reason why there's a lot of irreligious people in our cities is because they've run into a lot of Christian knockoffs who go to church. See, that's, that's one of the reasons there's a lot of irreligion, right? Every time I see statistics on, like, the nuns, like, all these young people, they're not going to come to church. They hate church. They're so disillusioned. Listen, of course they are. Listen, everybody's going to be disillusioned to the extent to which they keep bumping into replicas that are, that are bad, okay? It doesn't matter what age they are. Everybody is disillusioned by knockoffs. Like, like if you think, listen, if I went out and I bought an MS-661 off the Alpha eBay thinking I was going to get a German-engineered piece of American-made beauty that was going to run for 50 years, and I got this chainsaw, and I fired that thing up, and it was roaring for a little while. I started cutting into my first piece of oak, and the thing starts smoking, okay? I'm going to be severely disillusioned. Severely disillusioned by this stupid chainsaw, right? I'm, it's going to be—I'm going to be angry, right? And I'm going to be like these stupid—I might even never buy a steel chainsaw again because I thought that was a steel chainsaw, right? And there are a lot of people who not only don't anything to do with religion or Christian faith in particular because they've run into a lot of Christian replicas that are knockoffs, but also the Christian faith they thought they believed in was a knockoff, because they either went to a church that preached the gospel unfaithfully, didn't try to teach disciples to obey everything Jesus commanded, went only halfway in the medicine of the gospel, didn't offer the full counsel of God, as Paul says in Acts 20, when he talks to the church at Ephesus. Listen, I never shrunk back from telling you the whole truth, because I thought you needed the whole truth. And so I didn't tell you the part that you'd like and not the part that you wouldn't, and slowly meter out some of the stuff you didn't like. I just told you the whole truth, and I just trusted you to be moved by the Spirit in, in, in a certain form of human nobility, and that you would accept it all. And I feel like I served you in that way, right? And so, and some of it is just, you didn't listen. There's some people that they believed in a Christian knockoff, not because the church was unfaithful, or because their parents were unfaithful, or because people around them, but because they just picked and chose what they wanted to believe in Christianity. And it's like putting together the chainsaw, leaving parts you don't like out. And then you try to fire that thing up, it doesn't do anything but sputter. And you're like, stupid Christianity. No, that was you. You took necessary parts out. It didn't work. And you wonder why it doesn't work. It, it works with all the parts together. That's why my job isn't to just go and make disciples and baptize them, like it says in the Great Commission. My job is also to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded them. Because if I don't, if I don't, you might come for a little while. But when your saw doesn't run, you'll pitch the whole thing and you'll tell everybody else it doesn't work. And so, the question you got to ask yourself is, one, am I really following the real model of God? Am I believing the whole of the scriptures and the whole of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, obeying everything that he's commanded and accepting the whole of it all? Am I accepting the real model? Or am I selecting and deciding what picture of Jesus I want? 
Well, look, do you guys, do you guys sort of remember the movie Talladega Nights? Where like every time the main character said, I mean, he prayed to the baby Jesus. He'd be like, baby Jesus, baby Jesus, I just, baby Jesus, baby Jesus. It's like, this a, it was such a good example of knockoff replica faith. Of like, I like, the ba- I like baby Jesus, that's it, man. There's a lot of people like that. A lot of, I, I like the, it, or I like the Jesus that likes my politics. I like the Jesus that says my stuff. I like the Jesus that stays out of my bedroom. I like the Jesus that blah, 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 blah. But I don't want that. Is the model a true and pure model? And then two, wh- are you even trying to be the real oak Norwegian table? Or are you just trying to be a knockoff? Like, what are you in for? What do you think we're doing? Because listen, if you're like, look, Nick, I'm a knockoff. You probably hate me. I, hear, I have teenage girls, so I hear that all the time. You probably hate me, right? I'm a, uh, listen, I'm a knockoff. Listen, I don't care if you are a knockoff right now. That's not the issue. The issue is, what are you willing to endeavor to become? Like, leave, let's leave that behind, right? God is not calling you to achievement. He's calling you to faith. He's calling you to believe, not just in him, but to believe in him by believing him. You can't believe in God and believe that what he tells you is nothing but lies. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Nobody would accept you saying you believed in them if you didn't believe what they told you. When the main endeavor was them telling you stuff. You have to believe God by believing what he says and what he teaches and accepting it and trusting it by faith and endeavoring to become a true replica, not a knockoff. For your joy, for your joy, and so that you would be a fragrant offering. Right. Okay. So let's make it worse. Um, that's all great, big picture stuff, hopefully. That's what the scripture says, so don't get mad at me, okay? Um, the question is, okay, where do we go with this? And, and, we're, and, and so the Apostle Paul gets really meddlingly practical, okay? He says there's two areas. We're going to talk about one today. There's two areas where you need to get this dead on straight immediately, and you have to seek to achieve the highest possible level of imitation. In things sexual and sensual, and in how you talk to each other. Because these two things, words and sexuality, are two of the most powerful things coming out of the human soul. They're incredibly powerful. The words that you speak and what you do with your sexuality can either create flourishing in your life and in the lives of everybody around you, or they can wreak havoc and destruction and pain in your life and the lives of everybody around you. And remember, this book is written to us as a community. He's saying, in order for you to experience being the fullness of Christ, being the body of Christ, being one people together, enjoying the gospel, living out being God's workmanship in Christ, and knocking down the dividing walls of hostility, in order for you to experience that, you have to live together with a certain character, and it has to include 
the way you use your sexuality and the way you talk to each other, you cannot keep those for yourself and you cannot deny the counsel and the demands of God in those two areas, okay? There's this place where Jesus says, listen, anybody who goes to build a tower should calculate before he builds the tower if he's got enough bricks or enough money to buy bricks. Otherwise, he's going to build like half a tower and everybody's going to laugh at him because half a tower is not much good, you know? And he said, similarly, if a guy goes out and he's going to fight a foreign king and he knows the foreign king has like 20,000 troops and he only has 10,000 troops, he's going to like calculate and figure out there's any way he can win. Does he have better archers? Like are his chariots faster? Is there some place he can ambush them? Like is there any way to win this battle? Because if there isn't a way to win this battle, he's going to send an emissary to like pay tribute and like surrender before this thing even goes down because why all the waste, right? He, Jesus is saying, look, every human being, in order to be wise, has to calculate what things are going to cost beforehand. Listen, uh, you need to understand, if you're going to walk with Jesus, okay, you need to calculate in that he is going to tell you what to do with your genitals and your face. And those two things will be the hardest, probably. They will be two of the hardest places to obey Jesus. And they are essential to your flourishing, the flourishing of everyone around you, and to be a true example of a replica of the character of the holiness of God to the world. Especially now, in a world living in wreckage from the sexual revolution. But no more than in the first century. We're, we're, we're hardly more sexualized than first century Greco-Roman cities. And he was speaking to people who had a temple that was a wonder of the world dedicated to Artemis that had prostitute priestesses in their city. Like he knew, he wasn't, he wasn't in like Prudeville saying, hey, we should all be sexually moral. I've got this little scarlet letter patch if anybody fails. Like, that's not where he was. He was living in a complete, a very sexually debauched culture in which anything went. And in which sexual morality and spiritual morality and other senses of morality were completely disconnected from each other, except for in the most extreme offenses. And in the places where they did have a sexual morality, it was really twisted. So the, the first way that the Apostle Paul applies this, he says, listen, you have to be imitators of God in your sexual desires. And so he says it like that. He says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's people. Translated more literally, it's this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or greediness— covetousness, must not even be named among you. The reason they translate it not even a hint is because not even named could mean two different things. It could mean like, you shouldn't talk about sex. Right? Like that could be one way to take it. That like, don't talk about sexual immorality. Don't talk about impurity. Don't talk about greediness. Okay, or covetousness. Like, it offends people. People don't like it. Or like, or like you know, if you talk about sex, people start doing it. You know, so just don't say anything at all, right? So when he says it shouldn't even be named among you, like some people will take it that way, who will kind of want to take it that way, right? What it means is, is that it should be so absent from our community together, so absolutely absent, 
that bringing it up is kind of like wanton stupidity. Because it's just, it's not happening. Right? It shouldn't even be named. There isn't an opportunity to say, well, you know, you know, Angie did blah, 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 or Bill did blah, blah. It's like, that never happens. That never comes up. You don't even have to talk about it. Now, you might be thinking, I think we might be a long way from that, Nick. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. But let's not confuse where we are for the goal. Let's not confuse what we're doing and where we are and how broken we are, how difficult this is going to be with where we're headed. Do you understand? We're headed towards being a sacrifice that is being burned up for good purpose, the pleasure of which is the fragrance of its moral and spiritual beauty that God smells and we smell and everyone smells. And there's the heartbreaking beauty of the glory and goodness of God among us is worth whatever pleasures or desires or greediness in our heart that we can't satiate. That's where we're headed. And all of us have to head there. No matter what the proclivities of your sexual immorality are, no matter what the proclivities of your choice impurities are, and no matter what things you want to grab more of with greediness that maybe you're allowed to have, but you're greedy about it. You're, you're wanton about it. You're coveting about it. Even though you can have it in a measure, you won't let it be measured. Right? You've got to have more. And there's, I know a lot of Christians who hurt themselves fairly dramatically by going after things that aren't sinful in themselves, but because they go at them covetously or in a greedy manner with an unleashing of their, of their flesh upon the thing that should otherwise be good, they end up devouring it and, and throwing it up in their, in their unmeasured way of following because they're not really chasing it with love. And you can destroy a good gift of God when it's not pursued with love, right? So, okay, uh, um, this may be uncomfortable for some, but I've talked with enough people now who have come to church more recently that I don't—not everybody in our family knows what sexual morality is. Sexual immorality is. They just don't— I, I talk to younger people who haven't been to church, and they go to churches that won't talk about it, even though Paul talks about sexual morality in basically every epistle. And no church will say, you can do this, you can't do that. Okay? So, <laughs> um, I think it's important um, that we do that, right? Okay, where are we? Okay, Alan Purity, there's the card. That's an R. You should be able to fill that out by now. If you can't fill that out by now, you can come for a hug after the service. Okay. Oh, that's okay. So, so let me, let me try to lay this out a little bit, okay? So there's three categories in this passage. One is sexual immorality, pornea, which is usually, used to be translated fornication, but nobody knows what fornication means either. So sexual immorality, each, at least sounds like modern English. Impurity and greediness or covetousness. Now that does include financial greediness, okay? And it should be noted that for a lot of men, our desire to get more money is partly related to what women we will be able to get with the prominence that income will get us, okay? So, so greed for men is often related to sensuality, right? Um, partly because women are naturally inclined to choose men based on their prominence or status rather than their handsomeness. You've seen these couples? Okay. Um, and men realize this. And so they will engage in greed and trying to become as high status as they can get so that they can indulge in the kind of sexuality they want. 
And so greed for men is often bound up in this, right? And I should also note this. All through the Bible, all through the Bible, the assumption is that men will lead in the area of undoing the stranglehold of sexual immorality. Okay? And that's important because in the world, the way things work naturally, women control sex. Women control sex because sex costs them more. It costs them more because of issues of fertility and abandonment. And that when you have a kid, it makes you enormously vulnerable. And women understand this. And they don't want to be abandoned and so on. And men are often not in touch with that. And so women have to be the ones who, who limit and determine when that happens. Right? And the Bible assumes men will do that. That men will choose to forego sex. And men will tell a woman she needs to wait. And that they need to wait until we get to where we can freely enjoy this as a gift of God and not now. That men should lead in that area. And that is so rare. Listen, if you were thinking in your heart a few minutes ago, I don't want to imitate God because I want to be an original person. I want to be different than everybody else. Listen, you want to be different? You want to be different? You be a man that won't put your hands on a woman until you propose to her. You want to be different? There's a way to be different, and you will be unlike millions of people. And people do it all the time. It's not impossible. We're just so revved up and like strung out on our indulgent and inflammation of our sexual desires and urges, and they're so whacked out that we can't imagine them ever being in control. They can be in control. It's a process. It's a process. It'll take a little time. It'll take a little time. You'll have to stop feeding the monster a little bit. You'll have to start exerting self-control. But over time, you can become a man with the courage and ability, or a woman with the courage and the ability to control yourself. One of the things that some people really don't like is that there is no set of chapters in the Bible that explicitly and completely explain all of sexual morality. Okay? People will be like, can't you just send me to this chapter and verse that tells me what I can and can't do? And the, the problem with that is, is that most of sexual morality in the Bible is assumed. So for example, the Bible actually doesn't say anywhere explicitly you can't have premarital sex. Right? It just assumes it literally in every reference to sexuality. It was—because the loss of virginity before marriage in the biblical context was a, was a death-carrying offense. Like, it was, it was so nailed down and completely understood. So there's passages in the Bible of people who engage in sex outside of marriage and what ought to be done to them. <laughs> but there's no passage that says, don't have premarital sex, because it was just simply assumed universally and ubiquitously everywhere. Right? So part of it is you've got, to, you've got to be willing to read the Bible in its historical context and work through its context and how they changed in the Old and New Testament and how that functions. And it's not super simple. However, there are three chapters that encapsulate the most do this, don't do that, or really don't do that. References to sexual morality. And those are Leviticus 18 to 20. Leviticus 18 to 20. And if you read Leviticus 18, it's often quoted— Leviticus 18 and 20 are often quoted in discussions about homosexuality because homosexual sex, both male and female, are forbidden in both passages. And sometimes people summarize Leviticus 18 and 20, including some things in 19, as basically don't have incest, don't engage in homosexual sex, and don't have sex with animals. That, that, that's a good summary. That's not a good summary of that passage, okay? It includes all three of those things. 
It, there are some things that forbid incest. There are some things that forbid homosexuality. One verse that specifically says that. And then a verse that says that you're not supposed to engage in sexual intercourse with non-human life forms. Um, but, but it says a lot more that people don't see. For example, a number of the close relationship forbiddings of sexual contact have nothing to do with incest. I don't know if you know, notice that. So a number of the relationships that it forbids are close family relationships, but there's no f- familial genetic relationship between the two people that are forbidden to have sex. Why is that? It's not incest. Right? There's a lot of passages like that in those sections. See, see, it's very easy for us to say, well, I won't do any of those things. Like, I mean, think about how easy a pass that is for you. Did you read over that and go, oh, well, that's incest, homosexuality? Like for 97% of the population or so, you're like, you're like, I'm in the clear, man. I just need to stay away from farms. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> sorry, that was probably too much. Okay. But if you, go, if you go through these passages and others related to sexual morality, and you look at the adjectives related to how we should look at sexual morality, here are some of the adjectives that you hear. Dishonoring, rivalry, wickedness, defiling, profane, detestable. Right? So for example, dishonoring. If you look at the early part of chapter 18 in Leviticus— that would refer to the put, putting yourself into the intimate relations that should be private and monogamous of others. That is, not honoring the deserved privacy and off-limitness off of the relations that others deserve. So lechery would fall under this. A man shouldn't have to protect his daughter from you if you're 15 or 20 years her senior. Does that make sense? Like if I have a 16-year-old daughter, I shouldn't have to worry about guys that are like 25 and older hitting on her. Because there's a a privacy of relation that I have with her that I shouldn't have to worry about you meddling in. And if you hit on her, like you're, you're defiling the relationship of privacy that I have with her, right? Adultery, same way, right? Adultery is a defiling of the privacy that a man and wife have with each other and the off-limitedness of each one. So what's often called now spouse poaching would fall under this, right? There are natural unions of ways people should be sexually off-limits from each other that you should respect. Some of those are close family relationships. You're not supposed to have sex with your aunt. For example, the Bible has to explicitly say, because people do it. But also other close relationships, right? Close to this is is the the concept of rivalry. For example, the Bible says that if you marry a woman, you can't marry her sister while she's living. Now, most of us would say, well, that's kind of in bad taste. Well, there's a reason why it's in bad taste. Okay? And it, it, like, it, you got to be careful about, like, in bad taste, because when you say in bad taste, that assumes a whole morality that defines taste. I and mean, it's assumed we all agree on it, which we don't. Right? The reason you can't do it, the Bible explicitly says, and make a rival of your wife. Right? There are numerous sexual relationships that create rivalry in a community. And if we walk in the way of love, any sexual relationship that produces rivalry is something a Christian who is being loving would reject. So for example, marrying a close relative is given in the Bible. But also, for example, if you just like recklessly date among single people who all know each other. Right? Like if you're a dude and you know that you're like in a friend group of like 30 girls and you date your way through five or six of them, what do you, what do you think that's going to produce? 
right? Like it's one thing if over the course of two years, you take some of them out until you find the one that you're right for. But if in a couple of months, you ask out all of them, then the nature of what that's going to do is it's going to naturally produce rivalry. There, see, there's nothing forbidden about that. It's not like that's premarital sex or adultery or whatever, but it's, it produces the, the social destroying effect of rivalry, right? I could probably give a lot more examples of ways in which— so for example, immodesty, male or e- female immodesty, usually that means males immodestly acting as though they're higher status than other males and creating a status competition, or women— displaying their fertility in various ways, creating a status competition. Both of those actions of his modesty produce rivalry, which is sexual in nature and is sexual immorality. Right? That's why in the Bible it says you should be elevated in the Christian community specifically in relationship to your godliness. How much you love and serve others. Not your status or your good looks or whatever. Right? Or how loud you can be. I'm sorry, I'm going to go a little bit longer here. Wickedness. There are just some stuff that the Bible just says, look, it's just inherently and horrifically evil. So for example, in chapter 18 of Leviticus, it says, you shall not offer your children to Molech, which has confused some people because you're like, what does that have to do with sexuality? Offer your children as sacrifices to Molech. Well, Molech was this like, um, they made like metal deities and they put fires inside of Molech with its hands big like this. And you would take your newborn child and you would put it in the white, in like the white hot and orange hands of this metal god and your child would burn alive and you would burn the child alive to Molech and Molech would give you, for giving him the fertility of the womb, he would give you fertility of land and livestock. So you would grow wealthier by getting rid of this unwanted child that you gave as a sacrifice. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, that's what abortion is. And it's a form of infanticide where we reject the fruit of the womb so that our lives can be easier and we can be richer. There's nothing more destructive to what you want to do with your life than children. Okay, let's all be honest, okay? Like, they're a gift from the Lord, but they're a really heavy one, okay? And, (laughs) And, right, so that was the abortion of the ancient world. And it was practiced all throughout the ancient world. They had different gods they slaughtered, exposed, and burdened children alive to so that they could be blessed and made richer. But they didn't—but they all did it for the same reason. And we still do it for the same reason. Does that make sense? And so, so listen, you may be like, oh, great, I've had an abortion. So he probably hates me even worse. I forgot my mug in the lost and found, and I had an abortion. This is awful. Listen, the issue is not what you've done or what you encourage somebody to do or out of your recklessness put somebody in a position where in their immaturity they thought they didn't have, they thought they didn't have another choice and they did that. That's not the point. The point is, will you combine with faith the willingness to believe the truths that God would tell you And of things done wrong in the past that you would turn from them and repent and give them to the better sacrifice of Christ, who is himself the beautiful, fragrant offering. That the beauty of the incense of his death and resurrection will completely obliterate the stench of our sin. No matter what that sin is. 
so that God would smell a beauty in you as you are bound with Christ in faith and redeemed in him? And will you turn away from it for the future? And will you speak ill of it in your own testimony? And so save people from their own future heartache. That's the question. That's the question. What will you do now? That's always the question God is asking. Until final judgment, the question is always, what will you do now? Fourth is defiling. It ruins the state that should be kept sacred or invaluable. Right? That is taking something sexually that doesn't belong to you. That is for something else. That is an unmarried woman or man who is likely going to belong to someone else who isn't yours. It is defiling for you to take them like they're your own or to give yourself like you're their own. Right? Um, under this, you could also put— because we're talking— defiling is to take something that's not yours— Here's an example of greediness, right? It's technically okay, but when done with greediness, it becomes a terrible thing, right? Dating someone for too long. Especially if you're having sex with them. Dating somebody for too long. What are you doing? You're stealing their youth. The Bible says, my hope is that you'll rejoice in the wife of your youth. Men and women should be able to find people in their relative youth that, are, youth that are suitable to marry, and they should be able to marry each other and enjoy each other in the years of their youth. You have no right to use up years of a person's youth in dating when those should be used in finding that suitable person and enjoying each other in their youth and in the years of their healthy fertility so that they can receive children. And when you're a grown-up, like I understand if you're in college, you date for a few years because you want to get through college and whatever. You're afraid you'll get knocked up and you won't finish your senior year or whatever. I don't think—I think that's silly, but I get it. Okay, I had to do that myself. It was agonizing. I would have got much better grades if I got married after my sophomore year, okay? But outside of that, if you're a grown-up, you should basically know what's going on in six months. And if somebody dates you for more than a year without a proposal, you should have a very serious conversation or dump them. Do you understand? And it shouldn't really take that long, especially if you spend meaningful amounts of time together, which could easily be done because we have the internet now, even if you don't live in the same place. But you're—you see, when you take something that isn't yours, it could be somebody's sexuality. It could be somebody's time. Years of their life. Listen, I counseled a couple one time. They've been dating for 10 years. And the, and the guy was like, I just—I never really believed in marriage. She's like, I always thought he'd get over that and we'd get married. I was like, okay, you, you just stole her 20s and stole her 20s from someone else. And sweetie, like— what in God's name were you doing? And where is your father? Like, what is going on? Like, like he should have T-boned him with a car in an intersection accidentally after two years. <laughs> right? And you're like, listen, if you're sitting here, be like, I've been dating somebody five years. <laughs> listen, it doesn't—the issue is not what you've done. The issue is what are you going to do now? I feel like, well, I'm not ready for marriage. Fine. Break up with her or him. It's fine. If you can live in celibate singleness, just break up. It's fine. But if you don't want to lose them and you want them, then what are you doing? Especially if you're having sex, you're getting the enjoyment without the responsibility. That's not how God works. The two go together. They're part of the union. 
So take on the responsibility with the pleasure. Propose and get married. We can do this afternoon. It takes nine minutes. I won't charge you a dime. Don't give me the like, well, it costs like $15,000. Whatever. Or you can do it for a couple hundred bucks. Listen, I'll do it for free if you just want a wedding. I mean, you, we, we, listen, we built the Micah Center so that people, young people, wouldn't be impoverished getting married. So that if you wanted to put a wedding together for 300 bucks while you're in college, you can do that. You come and talk to me and say, Nick, here's where we are. I don't have the money to get married. I want to be able to invite my family. I can't do it. You tell me, we will make it happen. You understand? Okay. All right. <laughs> Profane is the destructiveness of, towards the social order, right? So sexuality should be taken seriously in certain ways. And so making light of it in certain ways or treating it like it's not a serious thing. So you know how you're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain? You just shouldn't say God unless you're talking to him or seriously talking about him. If you're, you shouldn't say, oh my God. You shouldn't say that. Okay, you're like, well, that's very legalistic. It's the second commandment. It comes before adultery. There's a reason for that. Okay, because if you talk about God right, then you'll think God is around when you're trying to commit adultery and you might stop. You understand? You, like it matters. Sex is the same way. You shouldn't take the sexuality that the Lord has given you in vain or speak about it in vain. Pornography is a good example of just taking sexuality and profaning it and treating it the way it should be treated, but also talking lightly about it. Certain ways of joking about it are all profane. You'll be like, you can't even joke about sex? No. There are ways in which sex can be joked about in ways that don't profane it. But if you joke about it in a way that humiliates virginity, for example, that's profane. If it humiliates monogamy, or seriousness, or people being together their whole lives. If you mock something that is beautiful, that's profane. And humor is supposed to be a form of art. And lastly, detestable. That is, that which we should in the natural function find disgusting. Now, I realize that in some ways that's subjective, but it's supposed to be linked to the natural function. So there's a certain thing that sexuality is for, and when it's used for what it's for, it's, it functions within the natural functions and is laudable. And when it's used against the natural function, it's considered detestable, is the biblical language, right? And there's a bunch of things called detestable in that sense, right? It's a thing that you should find, and that's not, that's not prudishness. It's like the, the right emotional response. Now listen, here's the problem with that. A lot of us don't feel that way about the things that are supposed to be detestable, right? So homosexual sex is, is, that word is used in relationship to homosexual sex. But there's, there's some of us who are like, Nick, I don't, I don't find it detestable, right? I get that. I get that. I understand that. But I think one of the things we have to do is to allow the scriptures to calibrate and allow us to be told that our, our sexuality is teleological, not just functional, right? The, the idea that, see, if you buy into the fact that your sexuality is just this thing that has no meaning and you can do whatever you want with it, then you can do whatever you want with it, and anything you don't find detestable is completely laudable. Does that make sense? But if your sexuality has a purpose that that's bound up in union and fertility, right, with somebody of the opposite sex, in which you come into this union of marriage, in which you live together in love and devotion and sacrifice, where your life is being burned up in a, as an offering together and producing a fragrance of love and service to other people in which you are hospitable towards new life entering it in a comprehensive way. Do you understand that's what your sexuality is? Then there are a number of things that are detestable. And, and you, 
homosexual sex should not be singled out here. For example, in Romans 1, it says women have abandoned the natural relation. And because that's very close to a reference to homosexual sex with men, the assumption is, is that that must be the practice of lesbianism, which it, it could be, and it, it may be slightly more likely in that context. But it also could very simply be the rejection of fertility within a marriage relationship. Right? The natural function. It's one thing to say, we're not trying to have a baby every time we have sex, okay? That's not required in the Bible, right? But one of the reasons why the Catholic Church teaches against birth control is not because they literally believe it's wrong in some ways. It's because when you tell people they can control births, what do they actually do? They stop having children, period. That's what they actually do. Just look at the birth rates everywhere in the world where there's birth control easily available to educated people. If you have a high school education, you have accessibility to birth control, you have 1.2 children or less, and the human race goes extinct. We can't be trusted with birth control. Do you understand? It, it's not like a, like a religious matter. Like, it's just a practical matter. God wants human beings. We won't have them if we can control our births. In the ancient world, they just put them in the white high hands of Moloch. And for us, we, we, we do abortion, right? If we don't want the baby. But even for like good evangelical Christians who love the Bible and are having good healthy marriages, we just do not want anything to happen where we could end up with more than two children, for God's sakes. It's one thing to not have 1.2 and to have a whole two, you know, but like, let's not get crazy, you know? And I don't think the Bible prescribes any amount of specific fertility for any of us. I don't think it does that, okay? I don't think teaching Christians they cannot engage in any kind of behaviors that control birth or, or consummation, at least, is right. But the Catholic folks, they're onto something. They are onto something. Because if you just go, do whatever you want, what people do is they just make themselves infertile. And I, I don't think that's the will of God. The first commandment to humanity besides get the world under control is fill it with more humans. And at the end of the Old Testament, one of the things he faults the people of God for is that they wouldn't give godly offspring to him, which was his main desire. That doesn't mean you have to have five kids. It means you need to think differently about hospitality within sexuality. What does it look like to be a hospitable husband and wife to the new life God would give? What does that mean for us? And how do I work that out? And I don't think it's as simple as have, try to have a kid every time you have sex or have as many kids as you want when you know darn well what you're going to want is none or a very manageable amount that won't impoverish you so that you still have enough money to buy cocktails and coffees at Starbucks and cars with leather seats and moonroofs. Do you know what I mean? And all of that is within sexual morality. It's one of the reasons why our same-sex attracted or transgender brothers and sisters get really frustrated with us when we act like sexu sexual sin is like basically just about fornicating, adultery, homosexuality, and stuff that like is unmentionable. It's not. Sexual morality permeates everything. It's everywhere in our lives. We're always expressing our sexuality. And if we're not careful, if we're not walking in the way of love, we're producing rivalries and defilements and things that are detestable all the time without even thinking about it. Because we want what we want. Because we do what we do with greediness. And we're not looking to be imitators of God. We're not looking to be those who walk in the way of love. And we're not looking to be people who are burned up to be a fragrant offering to God. But we can be. 
we can combine faith with the beauty of imitating God as displayed in Christ, and we can be that fragrant offering, and we can be a people in which sexual immorality and impurity with greediness isn't even mentioned. Let's pray. Lord, I recognize that in the book of Corinthians, these are people who were like going to prostitutes and had, didn't even have that figured out. And, and the Apostle Paul, you led him to call them brothers and sisters. And so I just I pray over this whole group of people. Surely there is much, based on what I've said, that people have been like, I guess I shouldn't have done that, or I knew I shouldn't have done that, or what do I do now? And I pray that you would lay over them by your spirit the comfort that if they put their trust in you, that you call them your children, and in Christ they are brothers and sisters, and that they are temples of the Holy Spirit, and you are calling them into you, their identity. And I pray that you'd give them a peace in an attitude of repentance towards those things. And I pray, God, that you would then raise us up in a desire to imitate you, to walk in the way of love, and to be a fragrant offering. Help us to rise up out of these seats in hope and in a knowledge of your good will for us. In Jesus' name.